Chapter 19, Part 2 of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is the LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Episode 22, Chapter 19, Part 2. The time to part had come. I promised to pay them a visit in the first days of Lent, but on condition that on my arrival in P, I would not find anyone informed of my name or of my concerns. The curate gave me the certificate of birth of his niece and the account of her possessions. As soon as they had gone, I took my departure for Venice, full of love for the charming girl, and determined on keeping my engagement with her. I knew how easy it would be for me to convince my three friends that my marriage had been irrevocably written in the great book of fate. My return caused the greatest joy to the three excellent men, because, not being accustomed to see me for three days absent, Monsieur Dandolo and Monsieur Barbaro were afraid of some accident having befallen me. But Monsieur de Bragadin's faith was stronger, and he allayed their fears, saying to them, with perilous watching over me, I could not be in any danger. The very next day I resolved on ensuring Christine's happiness without making her my wife. I had thought of marrying her when I loved her better than myself, but after obtaining possession, the balance was so much on my side that my self-love proved stronger than my love for Christine. I could not make up my mind to renounce the advantages, the hopes which I had thought were attached to my happy independence. Yet I was the slave of sentiment. To abandon the artless, innocent girl seemed to me an awful crime of which I could not be guilty, and the mere idea of it made me shudder. I was aware that she was, perhaps, bearing in her womb a living token of our mutual love, and I shivered at the bare possibility that her confidence in me might be repaid by shame and everlasting misery. I bethought myself of finding her a husband in every way better than myself a husband so good that she would not only forgive me for the insult I should thus be guilty of towards her, but also thank me at the end, and like me all the better for my deceit. To find such a husband could not be very difficult, for Christine was not only blessed with wonderful beauty, and with a well-established reputation for virtue, but she was also the possessor of a fortune amounting to four thousand Venetian ducats. Shut up in a room with the three worshippers of my oracle, I consulted Paralus upon the affair which I had so much at heart. The answer was, Serenus must attend to it. Serenus was the capitalistic name of Monsieur de Bragadin, and the excellent man immediately expressed himself ready to execute all the orders of Paralus. It was my duty to inform him of those orders. You must, I said to him, obtain from the Holy Father a dispensation for a worthy and virtuous girl so as to give her the privilege of marrying during Lent in the church of her village. She is a young country girl. Here is the certificate of birth. The husband is not yet known, but it does not matter. Perilous undertakes to find one. Trust to me, said my father. I will write at once to our ambassador in Rome, and I will contrive to have my letter sent by special express. You need not be anxious. Leave it all to me. I will make it a business of state, and I must obey Perilous all the more readily that I foresee that the intended husband is one of us four. Indeed, we must prepare ourselves to obey. 
I had some trouble in keeping my laughter down, for it was in my power to metamorphosize Christine into a grand Venetian lady, the wife of a senator, but it was not my intention. I again consulted the oracle in order to ascertain who would be the husband of the young girl, and the answer was that Monsieur Dandolo was entrusted with the care of finding one, young, handsome, virtuous, and able to serve the Republic, either at home or abroad. Monsieur Dandolo was to consult me before concluding any arrangements. I gave him courage for his task by informing him that the girl had a dowry of four thousand ducats, but I added that his choice was to be made within a fortnight. Monsieur Bragadin, delighted in not being entrusted with the commission, laughed heartily. Those arrangements made me feel at peace with myself. I was certain that the husband I wanted would be found, and I only thought of finishing the carnival gaily, and of contriving to find my purse ready for a case of emergency. Fortune soon rendered me possessor of a thousand sequins. I paid my debts, and the license for marriage, having arrived from Rome ten days after Monsieur de Bragadin had applied for it, I gave him one hundred ducats, that being the sum it had cost. The dispensation gave Christine the right of being married in any church in Christendom. She would only have to obtain the seal of the Episcopal Court in the diocese in which the marriage was to take place, and no publication of bans was required. We wanted, therefore, but one thing, a trifling one, namely, the husband. Monsieur Dandolo had already proposed three or four to me, but I had refused them for excellent reasons. At last he offered one who suited me exactly. I had to take the diamond ring out of pledge, and not wishing to do it myself, I wrote to the priest making an appointment in Treviso. I was not, of course, surprised when I found that he was accompanied by his young niece, who, thinking that I had come to complete all arrangements for our marriage, embraced me without ceremony, and I did the same. If the uncle had not been present, I am afraid that those kisses would have caused all my heroism to vanish. I gave the curate the dispensation and the handsome features of Christine shone with joy. She certainly could not imagine that I had been working so actively for others, and, as I was not yet certain of anything, I did not undeceive her then. I promised to be in P within eight or ten days, when we would complete all necessary arrangements. After dinner I gave the curate the ticket for the ring and the money to bring it out of pledge, and we retired to rest. This time, very fortunately, there was but one bed in the room, and I had to take another chamber for myself. The next morning I went into Christine's room and found her in bed. Her uncle had gone out for my diamond ring, and, alone with that lovely girl, I found that I had, when necessary, complete control over my passions. Thinking that she was not to be my wife, and that she would belong to another, I considered it my duty to silence my desires. I kissed her, but nothing more. I spent one hour with her, fighting like St. Anthony against the carnal desires of my nature. I could see the charming girl, full of love and at wonder at my reserve, yet I admired her virtue and the natural modesty which prevented her from making the first advances. She got out of bed and dressed herself without showing any disappointment. She would, of course, have felt mortified if she had the slightest idea that I despised her or that I did not value her charms. Her uncle returned, gave me the ring, and we had dinner after which he treated me to a wonderful exhibition. Christine had learned how to write, and he gave me proof of her talent. She wrote very fluently and very prettily in my presence. We parted after my promising to come back again within ten days, and I returned to Venice. On the second Sunday in Lent, 
Monsieur Dandolo told me, with an air of triumph, that the fortunate husband had been found, and there was no doubt of my approval of the new candidate. He named Charles, whom I knew by sight, very handsome young man, of irreproachable conduct, and about twenty-two years of age. He was clerk to Monsieur Ragionato, and godson of Count Agarotti, a sister of whom had married Monsieur Dandolo's brother. Charles, said Monsieur Dandolo to me, has lost his father and his mother, and I feel satisfied that his godfather will guarantee the dowry brought by his wife. I have spoken to him, and I believe him disposed to marry an honest girl whose dowry would enable him to purchase Monsieur Ragionato's office. It seems to promise very well, but I cannot decide until I have seen him. I have invited him to dine with us tomorrow. The young man came, and I found him worthy of all Monsieur Dandolo's praise. We became friends at once. He had some taste for poetry. I read some of my productions to him, and having paid him a visit the following day, he showed me several pieces of his own composition, which were well written. He introduced me to his aunt, in whose house he lived with his sister, and I was much pleased with their friendly welcome. Being alone with him in his room, I asked him what he thought of love. I do not care for love, he answered but I should like to get married in order to have a house of my own. When I returned to the palace, I told Monsieur Dandolo that he might open the affair with Count Algarotti, and the Count mentioned it to Charles, who said that he could not give any answer, either one way or the other, until he should have seen the young girl, talked with her, and inquired about her reputation. As for Count Algarotti, he was ready to be answerable for his godson, that is, to guarantee four thousand ducats to the wife, providing her dowry was worth that amount. These were the only preliminaries. The rest belonged to my province. Dandolo informed Charles that the matter was entirely in my hands. He called on me and inquired when I would be kind enough to introduce him to the young person. I named the day, adding that it was necessary to devote a whole day to the visit, as she resided at a distance of twenty miles from Venice, that we would dine with her and return the same evening. He promised to be ready for me by daybreak. I immediately sent an express to the curate to inform him of the day on which I would call with a friend of mine whom I wished to introduce to his niece. On the appointed day, Charles was punctual. I took care to let him know along the road that I had made the acquaintance of the young girl and her uncle as traveling companions from Venice to Maestra about one month before, and that I would have offered myself as a husband if I had been in a position to guarantee the dowry of four thousand ducats. I did not think it necessary to go any further in my confidences. We arrived at the good priest's house two hours before midday, and soon after our arrival, Christine came in with an air of great ease, expressing all her pleasure at seeing me. She only bowed to Charles, inquiring from me whether he was likewise a clerk. Charles answered that he was a clerk at Ragionato. She pretended to understand, in order not to appear ignorant. I want you to look at my writing, she said to me, and afterwards we will go to see my mother. Delighted at the praise bestowed upon her writing by Charles, when he heard that she had learned only one month, she invited us to follow her. Charles asked her why she had waited until the age of nineteen to study writing. Well, sir, what does it matter to you? Besides, I must tell you, I am seventeen and not nineteen years of age. Charles entreated her to excuse him, smiling at the quickness of her answer. She was dressed like a simple country girl, yet very neatly, and she wore her handsome gold chains around her neck and on her arms. I told her to take my arm and that of Charles, which she did, 
casting towards me a look of loving obedience. We went to her mother's house. The good woman was compelled to keep to her bed, owing to sciatica. As we entered the room, a respectable-looking man, who was seated near the patient, rose at the sight of Charles and embraced him affectionately. I heard that he was the family physician, and the circumstance pleased me much. After we paid our compliments to the good woman, the doctor inquired after Charles's aunt and sister, and alluding to the sister who was suffering from a secret disease, Charles desired to say a few words to him in private. They left the room together. Being alone with the mother and Christine, I praised Charles, his excellent conduct, his high character, his business abilities, and extolled the happiness of the woman who would be his wife. They both confirmed my praises by saying that everything I said of him could be read on his features. I had no time to lose, so I told Christine to be on her guard during dinner, as Charles might possibly be the husband whom God had intended for her. For me? Yes, for you. Charles is one of a thousand. You would be much happier with him than you could be with me. The doctor knows him, and you could ascertain from him everything which I cannot find time to tell you now about my friend. The reader can imagine all I suffered in making this declaration, and my surprise when I saw the young girl calm and perfectly composed. Her composure dried the tears already, gathering in my eyes. After a short silence, she asked me whether I was certain that such a handsome young man would have her. The question gave me an insight into Christine's heart and feelings, and I quieted all my sorrow, for I saw that I had not known her well. I answered that, beautiful as she was, there was no doubt of her being loved by everybody. It will be at dinner, my dear Christine, that my friend will examine and study you. Do not fail to show all the charms and qualities with which God has endowed you, but do not let him suspect our intimacy. It is all very strange. Is my uncle informed of this wonderful change? No. If your friend should feel pleased with me, when would he marry me? Within ten days, I will take care of everything, and you will see me again in the course of the week. Charles came back with the doctor, and Christine, leaving her mother's bedside, took a chair opposite to us. She answered very sensibly all the questions addressed to her by Charles, often exciting his mirth by her artlessness, but not showing any silliness. Oh, charming simplicity, offspring of wit and ignorance, thy charm is delightful, and thou alone hast the privilege of saying anything without ever giving offence. But how unpleasant thou art, when thou art not natural, and thou art the masterpiece of art, when thou art imitated with perfection. We dined rather late, and I took care not to speak to Christine, not even to look at her, so as not to engross her attention, which she devoted entirely to Charles, and I was delighted to see with what ease and interest she kept up the conversation. After dinner, as we were taking leave, I heard the following words uttered by Charles, which went to my very heart. You are made, lovely Christine, to minister to the happiness of a prince. And Christine? This was her answer. I should esteem myself fortunate, sir, if you should judge me worthy of ministering to yours. These words excited Charles so much that he embraced me. Christine was simple, but her artlessness did not come from her mind, only from her heart. The simplicity of mind is nothing but silliness. That of the heart is only ignorance and innocence. It is a quality which subsists even when the cause has ceased to be. This young girl, almost a child of nature, was simple in her manners, but graceful in a thousand trifling ways which cannot be described. 
she was sincere because she did not know that to conceal some of our impressions is one of the precepts of propriety, and as her intentions were pure, she was a stranger to that false shame and mock modesty which caused pretended innocence to blush at a word, or at a movement said, or made very often without any wicked purpose. During our journey back to Venice, Charles spoke of nothing but of his happiness. He had decidedly fallen in love. I will call tomorrow morning upon Count Algarotti, he said to me, and you may write to the priest to come with all the necessary documents to make the contract of marriage which I long to sign. His delight and surprise were intense when I told him that my wedding present to Christine was a dispensation from the Pope for her to be married in Lent. Then, he exclaimed, we must go full speed ahead. In the conference which was held the next day between my young substitute, his godfather, and Monsieur Dandolo, it was decided that the parson should be invited to come with his niece. I undertook to carry the message, and leaving Venice two hours before morning, I reached P. early. The priest said that he would be ready to start immediately after Mass. I then called on Christine, and I treated her to a fatherly and sentimental sermon every word of which was intended to point out to her the true road to happiness and the new condition which she was on the point of adopting. I told her how she ought to behave towards her husband, towards his aunt and his sister, in order to captivate their esteem and their love. The last part of my discourse was pathetic and rather disparaging to myself, for, as I enforced upon her the necessity of being faithful to her husband, I was necessarily led to entreat her pardon for having seduced her. When you promised to marry me, after we had both been weak enough to give way to our love, did you intend to deceive me? Certainly not. Then you have not deceived me. On the contrary, I owe you some gratitude for having thought that, if our union should prove unhappy, it was better to find another husband for me, and I thank God that you have succeeded so well. Tell me now, what could I answer to your friend, in case he should ask me, during the first night, why am I so different to what a virgin ought to be? It is not likely that Charles, who was full of reserve and propriety, would ask you such a thing, but if he should, tell him positively that you have never had a lover, and that you do not suppose yourself to be different to any other girl. Will he believe me? He would deserve your contempt, and entail punishment on himself if he did not. But dismiss all anxiety, that will not occur. A sensible man, my dear Christine, when he has been rightly brought up, never ventures upon such a question, because he is not only certain to displease, but also sure that he will never know the truth, for if the truth is likely to injure a woman in the opinion of her husband, she would be very foolish indeed to confess it. I understand your meaning perfectly, my dear friend. Let us then embrace each other for the last time. No, for we are alone, and I am very weak. I adore thee as much as ever. Do not cry, dear friend, for, truly speaking, I have no wish for it. That simple and candid answer changed my disposition suddenly, and instead of crying I began to laugh. Christine dressed herself splendidly, and after breakfast we left P. We reached Venice in four hours. I lodged them at a good inn, and going to the palace, I told Monsieur Dandolo that our people had arrived, and it would be his province to bring them and Charles together on the following day, and to attend to the matter altogether, because the honor of the future husband and wife the respect due to their parents and to propriety forbade any further interference on my part. He understood my reasons and acted accordingly. He brought Charles to me, and I presented both of them to the curate and his niece, then left them to complete their business. 
I heard afterwards from Monsieur Dandolo that they had all called upon Count Agarati, and at the office of a notary, where the contract of marriage was signed, and that, after fixing a day for the wedding, Charles had escorted his intended back to P. On his return, Charles paid me a visit. He told me that Christine had won by her beauty and pleasing manners the affection of his aunt, of his sister, and of his godfather, and that they had taken upon themselves all the expense of the wedding. We intend to be married, he added, on such a day at P, and I entrust that you will crown your work of kindness by being present at the ceremony. I tried to excuse myself, but he insisted with such a feeling of gratitude and with so much earnestness that I was compelled to accept. I listened with pleasure to the account he gave me of the impression produced upon all his family and upon Count Agarati by the beauty, the artlessness, the rich toilet, and especially by the simple talk of the lovely country girl. I am deeply in love with her, Charles said to me, and I feel that it is to you that I shall be indebted for the happiness I am sure to enjoy with my charming wife. She will soon get rid of her country way of talking in Venice, because here envy and slander will but too easily show her the absurdity of it. His enthusiasm and happiness delighted me, and I congratulated myself upon my work. Yet I felt inwardly some jealousy, and I could not help envying a lot which I might have kept for myself. Monsieur Daradolo and Monsieur Barbaro, having also been invited by Charles, I went with them to P. We found the dinner-table laid out in the rector's house by the servants of Count Agarati, who was acting as Charles's father and having taken upon himself all the expense of the wedding, had sent his cook and his major-domo to pee. When I saw Christine, the tears filled my eyes, and I had to leave the room. She was dressed as a country girl, but looked as lovely as a nymph. Her husband, her uncle, and Count Agarati had vainly tried to make her adopt the Venetian costume, but she had wisely refused. "'As soon as I am your wife,' she said to Charles, "'I will dress as you please,' but here I will not appear before my young companions in any other costume than the one in which they have always seen me. I shall thus avoid being laughed at and accused of pride by the girls among whom I have been brought up. There was in these words something so noble, so just, and so generous, that Charles thought his sweetheart a supernatural being. He told me that he had inquired, from the woman with whom Christine had spent a fortnight, about the offers of marriage she had refused at that time, and that he had been much surprised, for two of those offers were excellent ones. Christine, he added, was evidently destined by heaven for my happiness, and to you I am indebted for the precious possession of that treasure. His gratitude pleased me, and I must render myself the justice of saying that I entertained no thought of abusing it. I felt happy in the happiness I had thus given. We repaired to the church towards eleven o'clock, and were very much astonished at the difficulty we were experiencing in getting in. A large number of the nobility of Treviso, curious to ascertain whether it was true that the marriage ceremony of a country girl would be publicly performed during Lent, when, by waiting only one month, a dispensation would have been useless, had come to pee. Everyone wondered at the permission having been obtained from the Pope. Everyone imagined that there was some extraordinary reason for it, and was in despair because it was impossible to guess that reason. In spite of all the feelings of envy, every face beamed with pleasure and satisfaction when the young couple made their appearance, and no one could deny that they deserved that extraordinary distinction, an exception to all established rules. A certain Countess of Toes, from Treviso, Christine's godmother, 
went up to her after the ceremony and embraced her most tenderly, complaining that the happy event had not been communicated to her in Treviso. Christine, in her artless way, answered with as much modesty as sweetness that the countess ought to forgive her if she had failed in her duty towards her, on account that her marriage having been decided on so hastily. She presented her husband, and begged Count Agarati to atone for her heir towards her godmother, by inviting her to join the wedding repast, an invitation which the countess accepted with great pleasure. That behavior, which is usually the result of a good education and a long experience in society, was, in the lovely peasant girl, due only to a candid and well-balanced mind, which shone all the more because it was all nature and not art. As they returned from the church, Charles and Christine knelt before the young wife's mother, who gave them her blessings with tears of joy. Dinner was served, and, of course, Christine and her happy spouse took the seats of honor. Mine was the last, and I was very glad of it, but although everything was delicious, I ate very little, and scarcely opened my lips. Christine was constantly busy, saying pretty things to every one of her guests, and looking at her husband to make sure that he was pleased with her. Once or twice she addressed his aunt and sister in such a gracious manner that they could not help leaving their places and kissing her tenderly, congratulating Charles upon his good fortune. I was seated not far from Count Agarati, and I heard him say several times to Christine's godmother that he had never felt so delighted in his life. When four o'clock struck, Charles whispered a few words to his lovely wife, and she bowed to her godmother, and everybody arose from the table. After the usual compliments, and in this case they bore the stamp of sincerity, the bride distributed among all the girls of the village, who were in the adjoining room, packets full of sugar-plums which had been prepared beforehand, and she took leave of them, kissing them all without any pride. Count Agarati invited all the guests to sleep at a house he had in Treviso, and to partake there of the dinner usually given during the day after the wedding. The uncle alone excused himself, and the mother could not come, owing to her disease which prevented her from moving. The good woman died three months after Christine's marriage. Christine therefore left her village to follow her husband, and for the remainder of their lives they lived together in mutual happiness. Count Agarati, Christine's godmother, and my two noble friends went away together. The bride and bridegroom had, of course, a carriage to themselves and I kept the aunt and sister of Charles' company in another. I could not help envying the happy man somewhat, although in my inmost heart I felt pleased with his happiness. The sister was not without merit. She was a young widow of twenty-five, and still deserved the homage of men. But I gave the preference to the aunt, who told me that her new niece was a treasure, a jewel which was worthy of everybody's admiration but that she would not let her go into society until she spoke the Venetian dialect well. Her cheerful spirits, she added, her artless simplicity, her natural wit, are like her beauty. They must be dressed in the Venetian fashion. We are highly pleased with my nephew's choice, and he has incurred everlasting obligations towards you. I hope that for the future you will consider our house as your own. The invitation was polite, Perhaps it was sincere, yet I did not avail myself of it, and they were glad of it. At the end of one year, Christine presented her husband with a living token of their mutual love, and that circumstance increased their conjugal felicity. We all found comfortable quarters in the Count's house in Treviso, where, after partaking of some refreshments, the guests retired to rest. 
The next morning I was with Count Agarati and my two friends, when Charles came in, handsome, bright, and radiant. While he was answering with much wit some jokes of the Count, I kept looking at him with some anxiety, but he came up to me and embraced me warmly. I confess that a kiss never made me happier. People wonder at the devout scoundrels who call upon their saint when they think themselves in need of heavenly assistance, or who thank him when they imagine that they have obtained some favor from him. But people are wrong, for it is good and right feeling which preaches against atheism. At the invitation of Charles, his aunt and sister had gone to pay a morning visit to the young wife, and they returned with her. Happiness never shone on a more lovely face. Monsieur Agarati, going towards her, inquired from her affectionately whether she had had a good night. Her only answer was to rush to her husband's arms. It was the most artless, and at the same time the most eloquent answer she could possibly give. Then, turning her beautiful eyes towards me, and offering me her hand, she said, Monsieur Casanova, I am happy, and I love to be indebted to you for my happiness. The tears which were flowing from my eyes as I kissed her hand told her better than words how truly happy I was myself. The dinner passed off delightfully. We then left for Mestra and Venice. We escorted the married couple to their house and returned home to amuse Monsieur Bragadin with the relation of our expedition. This worthy and particularly learned man said a thousand things about the marriage, some of great profundity and others of great absurdity. I laughed inwardly. I was the only one who had the key to the mystery and could realize the secret of the comedy. End of chapter 19 Part 2